But let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to be together as your people. Lord, it is something we take for granted, but I have known and seen that in some places believers don't have shelter to worship. If they were trying to gather today, they would be gathering in the rain and in the weather. And I thank you, Lord, that you've provided us a nice shelter amidst the rain to be able to come and forget about the weather and remember you. Lord, I pray for each of our hearts today. There's so much going on in our lives. If we were to stop any one of us and just pour out our hearts, we would probably all be overwhelmed with the trials and tribulations and stresses and anxieties that are going on just among the few people that are in this room right now. So I pray, Lord, that we would be able to get past those things, that as we're here, we'd be able to focus on you, we'd be able to focus on the body of Christ and our place in it and how we can transform our lives by your enabling grace and power to impact a lost and dying world around us. So I pray for all of us, Lord. I pray for Jason as he preaches this morning and David Jenkins as he preaches tonight, that you would give them strength. And I pray that as we prepare to study First Peter, you would help us be ready, Lord. Help our hearts be ready. I pray that Jason's teaching this morning helps me as a teacher of the Word and that it helps all of us as recipients of your Word as we begin to study this important book. So I pray, Lord, for those still traveling here, that they would travel safely and that you would protect those who are in the body of Christ from traffic accidents, but also any others, protect them from accidents as the weather is increasingly difficult. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We will begin our time this morning. As I had an opportunity, I quickly, whenever someone's preaching, they send their notes to the Spanish translator. So I was able to look at what Jason is going to talk about this morning, and and you're going to get the introduction I thought I was going to give you. But that's God's sovereignty, and it's interesting how God works those things out when you don't think those things. So as we begin, we start a new book. It's been so many years in Hebrews that I almost don't know what to do when I go to my commentaries. (laughs) Now, I'm sure for some of you, it's probably music to your ears that I don't say turn in your Bibles to Hebrews. But if you miss it, next Sunday I'm preaching in the morning service and I will tell you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews. Because in my preaching through the book, I'm only in chapter 11. So I've got some messages to go when I have opportunities to preach. But in all honesty, for my own self, I'm excited to begin studying a new book. I picked the book of Hebrews originally because... I knew it was an important book, but I was very ignorant of its contents. Certainly, I had read it before. I had studied it some in seminary, as you sort of do a survey of all of the New Testament. But I knew there was a lot of deep truths in the book of Hebrews that I needed to study myself. And so, I love spending all that time studying in the book. Now, when I started, I never believed it would take me eight years to get all the way through the book in the Sunday school class. But... The nature of life is such that I obviously don't teach 52 weeks a year and a lot of other things happen and God worked it out. But it's nice for me to turn to something new. Now, as I've mentioned already, I'm not going to start the verse by verse teaching this morning, but you really are going to get an excellent overview from Jason. I'm excited about that. It's going to be good for the class. It's going to be good for me. But as I thought it through, I 
realize it took me a while to think about what I was going to teach. There are 66 books in the Bible. You knock off the book of James, which I taught when I first got here, and a few other shorter books that I taught at different times, 2nd and 3rd John and Philemon. And there's still a big pool of books that I could have chosen. And I thought it might be helpful for you to prepare your hearts to study First Peter if I shared something of how it came about that I decided to teach that book, but also to give you an ability to pray for me. I really need your prayers as I prepare and study. I think at times, if someone speaks on a regular basis and they're relatively comfortable speaking in front of a crowd, it might look easier than it actually is to prepare to teach. It's still a challenge for me to prepare every week to teach. And next week when I preach, I I promise you, and I pray that never changes, on Saturday I'm going to be very uneasy with what I'm about to say because I'll think, is this all I've got, God? So it's still a challenging process to preach and to teach. So I appreciate you praying for me. I really need it. And in light of everything that's in the book of 1 Peter, I think I need it even more. Since I'm starting 1 Peter, probably you could... Well, we don't bet, but if you were taking odds, you could probably guess that Second Peter will come next. But I'm going to spend some time in the life of Peter as I prepare to teach a book that I'm convinced was written by him. And in some respects, I have a head start on First Peter. When I started the book of Hebrews, I really didn't understand the book. I didn't know the content. I understand a lot more about First Peter than I did about Hebrews. And I'm much more familiar with many aspects of First Peter than I was with most of Hebrews. And so in some respects, 1 Peter is a natural and an easier choice of a book for me to teach. I use it in counseling all the time. When I'm trying to encourage people, I use it all the time. When I'm looking at the role of pastors and elders, I use it all the time. But I still wasn't convinced when I started thinking past Hebrews, what was I going to teach? And a part of me really didn't want to be in the New Testament. Not because the New Testament isn't valuable, but we really believe and teach that the entire Bible is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so in my heart, my initial thought was I want to teach something out of the Old Testament. I want to branch out and expose you to something different than just the traditional New Testament teaching, as important as that is. But I also realized, as I started thinking about different New Testament books, the Old Testament books are often very, very long, particularly the books that were on my heart to look into, like Deuteronomy. That's 30-something chapters, so if it took me eight years to go through 13 chapters in Hebrews, you could imagine, as I did the math... I'll be dead in chapter 12 or something like that. (laughs) So as I pondered through it, I thought, well, I want to keep a shorter book for a couple of reasons. Number one, I don't want to make you endure a very, very lengthy study when I know it's going to take me time to get through. But also so I can have a light at the end of the tunnel for me. Hebrews became a, it's not a chore in the bad sense, but it was a, it was sort of just a war of attrition with myself over a long period of time. And so I wanted to pick a shorter book, and that limited my options in the Old Testament. And then I thought about a book like Ecclesiastes, which is a little bit shorter than Hebrews, but it's so complicated and so lengthy, I thought I'm still going to bog down because the interpretive challenges are so great. And so I 
thought it through and I really, again, I wanted to teach from the Old Testament. And then I started thinking about the book of Hebrews and I realized I covered a lot of Old Testament throughout the book of Hebrews. Particularly of Hebrews chapter 11. It's like a history lesson. And so I was constantly referring to the Old Testament. And so in my own mind, I settled to myself that I don't think I've intentionally neglected the Old Testament. In fact, covering the book of Hebrews forced us countless times to go into the Old Testament. And so I finally came to grips and said, it's okay if I stay in the New Testament. But then where do I go? I know that Steve has taught several things since I've been here. I know what I've taught. I know what others have been teaching. And so then I started thinking about you guys. I started thinking about the fact that in our scheme of church organizations, this is the little flock over which I have direct week-by-week shepherding responsibilities. And so I started thinking, what might be the greatest blessing to you? I, I really believe I could pick any book of the Bible and it could be profitable for you. And it would be helpful for you. So don't misunderstand as though there's only one book right now that would help. But I really was trying to think from a practical standpoint what might most bless or most challenge or most convict our small group. And that caused me to think of a couple of things that were on the forefront of my heart and the forefront of my mind which in many ways solidified my choice of 1 Peter. Again, you're exposed to a lot of biblical truth. I think that's why you pick Lakeside. If you don't like Bible teaching, there's a lot of other churches that could help you in that way, but that's all we do. We teach the Bible, and I praise the Lord for that. That's all I want to do. And so, what could be most relevant, what could be most helpful, what might be a blessing to you was one of the driving considerations. And again, I mentioned a couple of issues that literally were two issues that I have had at the forefront of my mind, partly because of my experience as a pastor at Lakeside and partly because of my observations of the worlds around us. One of those issues is on a more personal level in the sense that it affects us individually and how we interact. And the other is on a more global scale as I reflect on the true church of God and our place in this particular time in history. So I'm going to mention that more personal issue first. And by personal, I don't just mean me personally, although it has great applicability to my life. I mean it's the type of thing that we have to look in the mirror about. We have to stop and look in the mirror and think about how we're living. And it specifically is the issue of marriage. I worry about the marriages at Lakeside that we have. I worry about my own marriage. And when I say worry, I don't mean in some hand-wringing sense, meaning I think about how to protect and how to care for. I spend time thinking about how to preserve. As many of you know, maybe all of you know, one of my responsibilities as a pastor here is to oversee the counseling ministry. And so I review all of the counseling paperwork. I oversee all the counseling cases. I don't counsel everyone, but I'm aware of what's going on. And I can assure you, marital issues consume a large part of our counseling ministry. And on a personal level, I do a lot of counseling. And over and over and over again, it's marital counseling. 
So in terms of what I deal with on a daily basis and in terms of my life when I wake up in the morning and look at the mirror, marriage is a big issue. How Christians live as husbands and wives, I believe, has a massive impact on the health of churches, on the health of families, and by extension, the health of our communities. It's no secret marriage is under attack. I think Satan wants to destroy marriage in part because it's a picture of Christ and the church and he hates Christ and the church, but also because he wants to find a way to destroy us. Sadly, since I've been here as one of the pastors at Lakeside, I've seen more than one marriage end in divorce, which is tragic, particularly since God hates divorce. I've seen marriages that have improved, and I praise the Lord for that. I've seen other marriages where people have just agreed, we'll live as enemies. And they're just running out the clock. None of that honors God. I don't want to see any more divorces at Lakeside. I want the marriages of our church to be an example of God's grace and love, not examples of Christian hypocrisy. And I want that for me as well. I think... Christian marriages often convey a very negative image to society of what Christianity is really like. Yeah, he really loves Jesus. Look how he's yelling at his wife. Boy, I don't want that kind of love coming my way. Yeah, she wants to tell me about Jesus. I'm glad I'm not her husband. She must just pasture him to death. So I really want to do my part by picking Scripture that will help us, I believe, strengthen marriage. Now, I think, again, I could pick any book of the Bible and help produce better marriages because all books in the Bible point to Christ, and Christ is the way to have a better marriage. But there is some practical instruction in the book of 1 Peter that is profound in terms of reflecting on the role of husband and wife. I go to it all the time in marital counseling because I hear problems and really the problems always are primarily the same. Even if they're packaged differently, the issues are very, very consistent. Why is that? Because we're all sinners and we're dealing with sin. Sin manifests itself in different ways, but the book of 1 Peter has some of the most tangible, practical information for dealing with things that I know of. Marriage is a gift from God And I know that our society doesn't see it that way, in part because we don't reflect it. So I want even people who aren't married to understand the value of marriage and the gift of marriage. And so I think, from the standpoint of the teaching of 1 Peter, though it'll be several chapters before you actually get into the words husband and wife, the applicability of how to live better, more godly lives begins immediately. And if we take to heart the admonitions and the exhortations and the warning of 1 Peter in terms of living a life of holiness and living a life of otherness, meaning not being consumed with ourselves and our own needs and our own rights, but focusing on others, including within the confines of our marriages, it will make the marriages in our class better. And it will make the marriages in our church better as we're better examples 
And those who aren't married, who aspire to marriage, will have a better framework for knowing what's involved in their own hearts to becoming a godly spouse. And yet, that's not the reason Peter wrote 1 Peter. It's a very valuable practical application. But the second issue that helped direct my heart to 1 Peter is related in some respects to the first thing I mentioned of marriage. But this gets into why Peter actually wrote the book, the purpose of the book. If I look back over the last couple of years, one of the biggest earthquakes in American culture is gay marriage. It's a radical redefinition of an institution that God originally ordained And yet, it's a subset of a bigger issue, and I think it is a vehicle to usher in a change in Christianity. This second issue is big picture, and it affects all of us, and it affects the entire church in America. And when I say the entire church, talking about the true collection of redeemed people. I believe, based on my observations, and I don't think I'm alone, I've heard other people even here, including Pastor Steve, say things that would lead me to believe that this is accurate, but I think we are heading into a unique and unprecedented era in American history when it comes to us living as Christians. I truly believe that perhaps for the first time since our country's founding, The true church of redeemed individuals, the true family of God, will face persecution on a broad scale from our government and from our fellow citizens. Now, saying something like that takes some explanation, and I want to try and do it in a little bit more detail than I normally would, and part of that is based on my observation of how I think this persecution is going to come about. I've addressed these types of issues many times in different sermons and different opening illustrations and different anecdotal stories. But a lot of what I'm seeing going on that I interpret through the lens of Scripture, I first started observing many, many years ago as a practicing attorney. Again, if you've been in my class, it's not a secret. I was a practicing attorney for quite a few years in California. And I remember as a lawyer, because I dealt with issues of discrimination and protected work status and employment issues and student issues, and I did a lot of investigation of discrimination complaints and harassment complaints, I think it was probably 20 plus years ago that I started connecting some dots as an attorney, but also as a new Christian, and I realized, huh, This is opening a dangerous door. If this continues down this path, I can see this could have a massive impact on the church. Again, I was a practicing attorney for a little over 14 years before I came here and started working as a pastor. I'm still a licensed attorney, but I don't have an active law license. And what I saw then was that if a few things cracked open a door, there could be some mischief. 
by the government towards Christianity. And I thought, I understood you only need a crack from a legal perspective and attorneys start filling the gap. What I didn't realize was that that wouldn't be necessary. The Supreme Court kicked the door wide open. And we can't spend time debating the merits of that because it doesn't matter. This is the law now. But by kicking that door open from a legal standpoint, it changed the landscape for Christianity. What I saw happening 20 plus years ago, and I wondered, huh, this could be bad. I see now at far advanced beyond what I concerned, and it's actually worse than I anticipated. Now, Again, I want to be very clear and careful how I talk because I realize when I'm not teaching verse by verse, there's potential for misunderstanding. I'm thankful that this is being recorded so that if you're confused by something I've said, go back and listen to it again. I'm happy to talk to you about it. I don't want to confuse things. And I'm not sharing this with you all to make you depressed and doom and gloom because I'm not a depressed person. So I've said, I think we're entering an era of persecution that we've not seen. But I also want to clarify that I think it's going to look different than what I hear amongst conversations with other believers. What I read in Christian publications. I think some of that comes from the fact that a lot of people who are giving opinions on this don't fully understand how our legal system works. Now, I I don't pretend to be the most knowledgeable person in the world, but I do know a little bit more about the legal system and how it works. And I see quite often Christians getting worked up, but not about the right thing. They get worked up, but they don't understand that's not the danger. As parent, I thought about this analogy because I see Satan at work in the world. Again, I don't have some special glasses that I put on. If you read the old Frank Peretti novels, you know, you see the demon in the corner. That's not it. (laughs) But when our book, 1 Peter, says the devil is prowling around like a lion, I believe it. And I see his handiwork all over our society. But as a parent, when your kids are little, it's kind of fun at times. You trick them. Look over there, and then you do something behind their back, and they're just amazed. I don't want to insult us, but we're as easily tricked by Satan, I think. He does some razzmatazz over here and we kind of look and we miss what's going on behind our backs. And so I see that happening because the public persona of Christianity and the public outrage of things that Christians are worked up about often misses the real danger. So as much as I can, I'm going to slow down a little bit and try and put some different pieces together so that you understand where I'm coming from. I am very concerned about causing confusion and not clarifying things. Again, please feel free to approach me later and ask me questions. I'll be happy to explain in more detail what I'm talking about. Re-listen to the message But I'm going to share a few different observations and thoughts. 
and try and tie it in to where I see the true danger coming at the church. First, from a biblical perspective, the last couple of centuries of Christianity in America, which have been characterized by and large by Christians living in peace, gathering together like we're doing today, nobody caring what we're doing, from a biblical perspective, that's an anomaly. That is not the norm. I don't think we've praised God enough for the blessings we've had. I know I haven't. To get in a vehicle and come and worship and nobody cares. Now it's tragic as a lost and dying world that they don't care. But praise the Lord the government doesn't care. They're not waiting outside. They're not reviewing the tapes looking to arrest somebody. That's a blessing. I think God has had a purpose for our country in spreading the gospel around the world. And we've been given a measure of freedom that is contrary to the history of most Christians in most places that have ever happened. Now here's the challenge from that standpoint. We think it's normal because it is normal to us. And so we often are very outraged and upset and the reality is what the Bible said is that we should expect persecution. In John chapter 15, Jesus made it clear, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You're on solid ground when you're quoting Jesus. You can't get more authoritative. And it's interesting because the Bible does not portray persecution as something about which we should sit in a corner and cry. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Persecution because of Jesus Christ, because we are believers, because we have sworn our allegiance to Jesus, the King. Persecution is supposed to be the norm, not the exception. But in America, by God's grace, it's been the exception. And in some respects, the church is weaker for it. Because I think from a biblical perspective, persecution is a refining fire. Those are, again, those are scriptural words, not my own. Persecution leads to blessings that you can't receive in any other way. And I think that time of peace, in some respects, is drawing to a close. I don't have a date or a time, but looking at the signs of our culture, things have changed rapidly. Yet, even as I say that this time of being left alone this unusual era where we've not really faced persecution for our faith is coming to a close, I think the persecution is going to look different than what many Christians think. And I'm going to tell you specifically why, and I'm going to qualify it, because if that changes, you just mark your calendar, everything is going to change. But until this one thing I'm going to talk to you about changes, persecution is likely going to look different here than it would in other countries where Christians are killed and beheaded and hanged and tortured. First, I don't believe churches in the broad sense will ever be shut down in America. 
I think in my lifetime, I think in the lifetime of my kids, I think churches are going to be perfectly legal in America, and in many respects it will look like things are the same. In fact, I believe in some respects there are going to be some churches that appear to thrive and prosper in the midst of all of this. Now, this is the part where I don't want anybody to get confused because I've just said I think persecution is coming and now I'm saying churches are going to be legal, some are going to thrive, things are going to move on as always. Why am I seem to be talking out of two sides of my mouth? I'm not, but I'm telling you that the appearance of all the churches being shuttered and armed guards there is not reality. And it ties to a unique situation in America that governs our legal system that provides a greater protection to churches than people realize. But beyond that, there's a big difference between churches, and I'll use a small c, and the one true church of God, I'll use a big c. Satan always has counterfeits. Satan is happy that there's a church on every block, as long as they're not teaching the truth. And as long as the people inside are being lullabied to sleep as they're marching towards hell. Recognize Satan doesn't have any interest in shutting those churches down. They're doing his work. They're deceiving people. They're drawing away disciples after themselves when they're not really doing anything to advance the gospel. Small C churches in particular are going to proliferate and you'll never know there's anything different. But I think the one true church comprised of genuine believers and a church such as Lakeside that truly is bound to the scriptures are going to start being squeezed. But the squeezing, the impact is going to come in a specific arena, I believe. So long as this aspect is present. And it has to do with the First Amendment of our Constitution. Now, I'm not here to give you a history lesson on America per se, but I do want to say something about the First Amendment because it helps us understand some of the limitations of others when they come after us. The First Amendment, I won't read all of it, but it says, Congress shall pass no law respecting an establishment of religion. A lot of people hear that, and so people scream and holler and those things. But it's the next part that is particularly relevant to churches like us, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. My mind races back to law school. There's names for these things. I'm not going to bore you with those. But in one sense, that clause in our current system, I think, guarantees that Pastor Steve can stand up here until the Lord takes him home and preach in the truth. And he's not going to be arrested. I don't believe the church will be attacked in a literal sense of armed guards busting to the doors to stop him from preaching a particular thing of the Bible. Now, if that First Amendment goes away, all bets are off. If that First Amendment goes away, forget everything I'm saying and pray. But how our legal system works is different, even though it looks at times like we're a lawless group and a lawless society and that things are going crazy. Trust me, there are some internal controls that I think are God-given that provide us a measure of protection. And I think the free exercise clause of the First Amendment is one of those. 
Now, I hear a lot of people in churches say that the fix is in. The Supreme Court's ignoring the Constitution and the President's ignoring the Constitution. And some of that's true in one sense. On one level, I agree. I mean, I'm a lawyer. I disagree with some of the rulings. But on another level, until that First Amendment clause that I read goes away, the gospel will still be proclaimed. Well, the gospel will be proclaimed no matter what, but I think the gospel can be proclaimed without myself or Pastor Steve going to jail. I believe in my lifetime, and I could be wrong, and I'm not, a, I'm not a prophet of God, but I believe in my lifetime, the lifetime of my kids, a true Christian pastor will be able to open the Word of God and preach the truth without being arrested in America. Now, some of you may be thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute, well, why are you calling persecution then? Because I think the persecution that we are going to face, as long as the First Amendment's in place, is primarily bureaucratic and financial. And yet that can be just as devastating as somebody going to jail. I pray this doesn't seem too tedious and I'm going to have to speed up because I'm running out of time. But to do this, I'm going to use our church as an example even though we're one of countless churches, we're a church and we happen to be here right now. Some of you know these things about churches. Some of you may not think about these things. Some of you may not know them. But Lakeside, of course, is in Clearwater. You know that. We're in Pinellas County. We're in the state of Florida. We're in the United States. And because of those geographical facts, we have a lot of advantages as a church. The United States, right now, recognizes us as a nonprofit, a tax-exempt organization. And so our church's offerings aren't taxed. You look over the course of the year, the offerings of our church, our budget is proposed over a million dollars. Those offerings aren't, aren't taxed by the government. We don't have to give them a portion of our gifts. We can use every penny of it for ministry. Not only that... If you give to the church and you itemize your taxes, Uncle Sam gives you a tax deduction, which is personal, tangible benefit to reduce your tax burden in a legal way. We send giving notices. If you've given to the church, you've received those little notices with some catchy wording. The catchy wording is specifically required by the IRS. Beyond Uncle Sam, at the federal level, on a state level, Lakeside doesn't pay sales tax on the things we buy. Because we're a nonprofit recognized by the state, when we buy our office supplies, when we buy, for example, chairs like this, when we buy other equipment, we have an exemption from sales tax, which saves us, because we're in Pinellas County, around 7% on every transaction. But when you buy a lot of things over time, that adds up. Now, beyond that, we are, again, tax-exempt, and in the history of America, churches have enjoyed a unique exemption in that none of us pay property taxes on our real estate. This is several acres of land here in the middle of Clearwater. There's a dollar value to it. And if the government chose to assess taxes, we would owe a substantial amount of property taxes on our church facilities. Because the church owns all of this land. It owns the land back to the school, the buildings. So, in the context of that, take it a step further. We operate Lakeside Christian School. Lakeside Christian School is allowed to accept students who use state scholarships to pay for their tuition. The McKay scholarships are a particular type. Step-up scholarships for low income. We receive a huge chunk of our revenue because... The state says, look, you can go to any private school, including Lakeside Christian School. 
So just in that short summary, you're talking millions of dollars, and we're just one little church in terms of values of things. Perhaps in cash outflows, hundreds of thousands? You think if they only taxed our offerings 10% or 20%, 100 plus thousand, 200 plus thousand. I think that's the area where we're vulnerable. I believe that sooner rather than later, that's going to be the first wave of persecution for the church and nobody is going to care. If the police came in and put Pastor Steve in handcuffs, that would be all over the news. There'd be 50 people with Facebook or whatever the other things are filming it and it'd be an outrage. But if suddenly they said, well, I'll tell you what, how about you do your fair share, Lakeside, and you pay 20% of your offerings and taxes. It would devastate our ministries, but who's going to protest besides us? Well, they get a million dollars a year of donations. They deserve to have the government collect some of that. I think what's going to happen sooner rather than later is that the government is going to make it clear that to have government blessings, you have to agree as an organization, no matter the type, that you're willing to hire people regardless of their sexual orientation. And you're going to have to hire them, employ them, not discriminate against them. And what has been a protection in the past of that, wait a minute, we believe the Bible, they're going to say, we don't care. And what I think will happen is they will condition tax benefits on compliance with their greater social program. Lakeside Christian School, you want to keep accepting the scholarships? Then all you have to do is agree to hire people regardless of their sexual orientation, regardless of their practices, regardless of their religious beliefs. We can't change. Our ministry is to proclaim truth. That's why we're there. There's other schools to educate kids. We're there to proclaim the gospel and teach. Lakeside Christian School will be shut down overnight. From our church's standpoint, we're not a giant entity. Every year, we're prayerfully hoping we can meet the budget. You look at the bulletin, giving in July, as is often the case, is down quite a bit. We don't panic, but that's life. We don't have millions of dollars in reserve to weather storms. Most churches don't. But if we suddenly have to start paying a portion of our offerings for income tax, staff is going to be laid off. Or something's going to have to change. If we suddenly have to pay property taxes on our facilities, that's a dramatic change. Sadly, if people don't get a tax deduction for giving to church, some people would stop giving or reduce their giving and give it somewhere else so they get the tax break elsewhere. And all that will occur while Christians are upset about what they saw on Fox News. And we're being bled to death financially on the backside because we operate in a society where cash is what you need to move. Let me speed up a little bit and I apologize because I may not finish all of this. Beyond that, there are going to be Christians that have to decide whether they're going to work or stand for their faith. I think for a lot of people... The time is going to come where they're going to have to pledge loyalty to a statement that says, I won't discriminate based on any characteristic, no matter how sinful. And if they're not willing to agree with that, they're going to have to lose their jobs. 
we already see Christian bakers and Christian florists and Christian photographers being fined hundreds of thousands of dollars because they won't participate in gay weddings. And when we protest, society is just going to be puzzled. They're not going to understand it. Look, you can still go to church. Nobody's bothering you. The reality is I think some Christians are going to go bankrupt. They're going to lose their houses, not because they're coming out and saying, you're a Christian, we're taking your house, but because you can't pay the judgment for refusing service to that person. Well, the way to satisfy the judgment is we'll take what you have. I think that could happen to some churches if they lost judgments or things like that. You don't pay the property taxes. How does the government get property taxes? They take your property. Again, by our world standards, that prosecution won't seem massive. There'll still be people dying around the world. But the impact on the true church is going to be devastating. 1 Peter directly addresses how do you live in that kind of society. It's written to encourage Christians who are being persecuted. It's written to believers who are living in the midst of persecution that's coming from every angle. And it's telling them not how to hide and how to run away and how to stop the persecution. It's telling them how to respond in the midst of it. Whether they're an employee with a horrible boss... Whether they're a believer married to an unbeliever. Whether they're a citizen being subjected to abuse by the government, financial or otherwise. From our perspective, I think First Peter could not be more timely. And by the time the election occurs in November and we wake up even more depressed, you're already going to be seeing the seeds of how are you to respond to this. And let me assure you, the response is not for us to all go get guns and form the Lakeside Christian Militia to get ready to fight. (laughs) That's not the proper response as much as some of you might want that to be. So I pray that this will minister to all of us. As we start diving into this, I'm going to illuminate some of these things. I skipped over some of what I wanted to say this morning. I talked a little bit longer than I expected. But I want us to have our eyes open. I want us to be able to discern the times. I want us to be able to see the attacks of Satan for what they are. What I don't want us to do is to get into a battle with our fellow citizens as if our goal is to show we're just as tough a fighter as they are. That's not what you find from Scripture. And let me give you a hint. Week after week, I'm going to tell you what First Peter tells you. Be holy just as God is holy. In the midst of everything, that's our testimony. That's what the culture needs to see from true Christians. Not that we're as angry as they are. Not that we're cantankerous. Not that we're well-armed. But that we're humble and dependent on the God who saved us. And we have hope and confidence despite what's going on. So that's where we're headed. And I hope you will join me as we study this book. Let me close our time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your sovereign protection of us. I thank you for your sovereign calling of us. I thank you for your sovereign election of us. And Lord, as your people, I pray that we'll learn from your word. I pray since we're studying First Peter in this class that every one of us will listen carefully to 
Pastor Jason this morning as he, on his own and separate from me, introduces this book. I pray that we'll listen, and then I pray as I teach through some of the same things again, it will be reinforced and solidified in all of our hearts so that we're prepared to live in the world that is quickly evolving around us. And I pray, Lord, that you'll give us hope and encouragement in the midst of the storms. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.